Well, hey, friends, welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast with Kevin Morris. And we're continuing our study in this wonderful book entitled Theoretical Practical Theology by Peter Van Maastricht. Uh, you're a longtime listener of the show. You should know this by now, but if you're just joining us, I want to welcome you to a study of systematic theology. We're going through all of the topics of theology, literally the A to Z, and we're doing it with a man who is very renowned as a systematician of theology, as well as a pastor in his day during the 17th century. This man, Peter Van Maastricht, who Jonathan Edwards called uh, the greatest, uh, or called his work here, Theoretical Practical Theology, the greatest work available in print next to the Bible. So, uh, really excited to be continuing our study through this. If you do have a book, we're on page number 67. And if you don't have a book but want to because you want to follow along with what we're doing here, uh, then you'll find a link in the description of this video on YouTube where you can purchase a copy of this book. I wanted to say before we get started that this edition of the show is brought to you by my generous supporters over at Patreon.com. Have a great coalition of supporters of this podcast and everything related to better Bible reading. And so if you have been uh, encouraged, if you've been helped by the content that I create and you're thinking about finding a way to support what I'm doing, you can head over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash better Bible reading. And there you can choose from a variety of different support tiers, or you can just pledge an amount for whatever you want. But whenever you do choose a support tier, you'll gain access to exclusive content as my personal way of saying thank you so much for your support. It means the world to me. Well, as you know, in this study in the book, we have made our way through Peter Van Maastricht's best method of preaching. We did a series through that, a mini-series we might call it. Uh, if you're interested in that, you can head to the YouTube channel and find all of those. Uh, but last time we were together, uh, took a little spring break, so we haven't been doing this in a couple weeks, but now we're getting back into our uh, bi-weekly routine here. We started the official chapter one entitled The Nature of Theology, which is on page 63. We went all the way through page 66, and now we find ourselves at what he calls the first theorem. He wants to explain the method of theology, and he's going to do that in three different ways. He's going to talk about the dogmatic part of theology, the elinctic part of theology, and then the practical part of theology. So hopefully, time permitting, we're going to work our way all the way through page uh, 73. So what he does here in this uh, little section is he's making the argument about method and order of theology. And so he's going to explain uh, a logical process of theology, why it is that we do it in a certain order, or why should we do it in a certain order, as well as the method, the recipe, or why that is the case and why it is helpful for us. So he's been leaning on uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. He's going to build off of that, which we covered last time, and he's going to introduce a variety of different scriptures here. So what he says is, first of all, in the dogmatic part, that theology must be taught in a certain order. 
Here's what he says at the beginning, page 67. He says, From what has been said, it is apparent by way of introduction that theology must be taught according to a certain method, and it must be the kind of method in which theory and practice always walk in step together. This is one of the reasons why Peter Van Maastricht's work shines so brilliantly, because it is the case, as I've said already in this study, that when it comes to works of theology, it's rare to find somebody that is as balanced as the Bible is balanced. You will, you will normally have somebody who is very good at what we might call the theory, and then somebody else who is very good at what we might call the practice. It is very common for works of theology to be heavy on one or the other. And normally, those that aren't heavy on one or the other, but are very balanced, are going to be absolutely massive. Now, what I like about Peter Van Maastricht's work is, although this is a multi-volume, this should end up being about seven volumes, that this book really isn't gigantic compared to other works of theology. And yet, he's able to pack in what he believes to be a biblical balance between theory and practice, as he says, walking step by step along the way. So, anytime that he's presenting theology, you have an emphasis on the theory, on the doctrine, on the head knowledge, we might say, and the practice, the uh, conclusions, the response that should come as a result of that theory. And he gets this, no, no surprise here from the Bible. He says, in fact, they must walk together in such a way that theory precedes and practice follows in every one of theology's articles. It says, for the apostle commands Timothy to teach just as much as to exhort all the heads of theology. He should certainly teach, and then he should exhort. He says, for this reason, the covenant is spoken of as a covenant ordered in every respect. He cites uh, the Old Testament, Second Samuel twenty three five. There, uh, what he's getting at here is probably one of the most well known Bible verses. Those of you who grew up uh, in a youth camp setting, or maybe just a church setting where Sunday school it was a big deal to memorize Bible verses. I think of something that, like today, something like Awanas. I don't know if uh, those of you watching know what that is. Uh, but it's uh, one of these programs that children are commended to memorize all kinds of scripture passages, and this is certainly one of them. Second Timothy uh, chapter two, he says, the apostle says that the approved worker is the one who rightly divides the word of truth. So study to show yourself as a worker approved and no need of being ashamed, rightly dividing or rightly handling the word of truth. So the Bible is multifaceted. Uh, The command to rightly handle God's word means that we have to work through a range of different genres, two different testaments, a wide variety of books, and then a wide variety of which books are describing something to us, informing us about something, exhorting us towards a certain pattern of living. So the practical and the theoretical, the theory and the practice of the Christian life. And he says this is what we're called to, and that means that it is something 
we must be considering as Christians. We can't afford not to think about the balance between theory and practice in the Bible, because that is the balance of the Bible. So if you care about the Bible, if you want to be somebody that rightly handles the word of truth, as the Apostle Paul commends Timothy, then you must dedicate yourself to answering the question of the method of theology and the order that we do theology. So that's his main argument here. What he wants us to understand is that whole arrangement of the Bible in this order really follows the covenant that God gives to us. Uh, He says, the whole biblical text without doubt is a covenant ordered in every respect. So we have layer upon layer. We have a logical progression in the Bible, and because of that, because the Bible is orderly, because the Bible uh, is an arrangement from beginning to end, then the way that we study theology should be an arrangement. It should be orderly. It should be uh, derived into a system. He says, For this reason, from the very first beginnings of the Christian church, when doctrinal heresies began to creep in, Christian theology immediately began to be arranged methodologically into a system. And then he says, as is evident not only in the more illustrious creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the uh, Ephesian, the Chalcedonian, and others. And then he says, but also in the individual writings of the first church fathers. And he talks about Clement and uh, Augustine and others. And then he goes on to probably some of the even well-known names in the Reformation, like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and all of those. So his point is, the way that Christians from the very beginning have dealt with things like doctrine. So think about heresies in the church or uh, heretical controversies that popped up where we had to start defining who Christ was. Some people were saying that Jesus wasn't actually a person. So we had to defend that. Some people were saying Jesus wasn't actually divine. So we had to defend that. All of these different Uh, categories of theology as they crept up throughout the history of the church, all the way back to the very beginning, the way that these things were handled was by an orderly structure of doctrine. The creeds, the early creeds of the church, the Apostles' Creed, all follow a logical format. They are a method of theology unpacked. And then he says that that pattern continues on all the way through the history of the church even to our present day. So the mentality behind organizing theology into a method or into a logical uh, progression was not something that is a recent innovation in his day in the 17th century or in our day in the 21st century. This is something not that the Protestant reformers invented. This isn't even something that uh, Augustine himself invented, but this is something that is all the way back to the birth of the church. And the Bible itself, which we'll get to in a moment, even the way that the Bible is organized follows the same pattern. So that's his uh, first point, is that theology must be taught in a certain order, and the reason for that is because it always has been. And so this is not a matter of reinventing the wheel, this is something that's staying faithful to a historically derived uh, 
pattern. The second thing he says is the need for method in theology is confirmed by three reasons. He gives three reasons for why theology must be uh, organized in a particular method. Interesting reasons that he gives. Number one, why, uh, why method in theology is a need is, number one, the nature of God who since he is not a god of confusion, has conducted and does conduct all his works in the most orderly way possible and desires all things to be done decently and in order. 1 Corinthians 14.33 uh, That verse uh, is a running joke in my denominational context, Presbyterianism, uh, that Presbyterian's favorite verse that comes from right there in 1 Corinthians 14 to do all things decently and in order. And sometimes we get picked on for being too decent and too orderly, and uh, sometimes we get uh, charged with supposedly uh, quenching the spirit because we're too orderly. So it's just kind of a joke there. But the mindset behind that is not only because of what 1 Corinthians 14 says, but because of the nature of God himself. God is not a God of confusion. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul, when he's giving the Corinthians instructions for their worship, which is what the context is right there, he tells them that all things are supposed to be done decently and in order because God is God. God is not a God of confusion. The way that we conduct our worship should be theologically informed, and the theology that we're talking about should be orderly because God himself is not a God of confusion. I'll give you the other two points that he makes, and then we'll unpack that a little bit more. Number two, the nature of this theology, which, since it embraces diverse dogmas scattered throughout the vast corpus of Scripture that are among themselves mutually consistent, ordered, and aiming at the same goal, certainly requires these dogmas to be collected and constructed in a manner in a manner mutually consonant with one another. So that second reason is because the Bible is not contradictory. It's very important. We'll come back to that in just a moment. And then the third reason he gives is the benefits of this method, which if they belong to any science, at the least belong to the most outstanding science of all. He says, what is the method for? A method brings clarity to the topics that must be taught and produces understanding when through a knowledge of logical consequences, it makes it easy to remember, since it strings together subjects as with a chain, by which something may be recovered easily enough if it should drop out. So, really strong reasons, I think, a very, very solid argument for the need for method in theology. So the first reason we start all the way at the top, because God is not a God of confusion. We might say it this way. Now, some people might view this as somewhat of a uh, controversial way of putting it, but I think that this is a fair way to state it, that God is logical. Now, what I don't mean by that is that we can invent God up as a certain pattern of ingredients, or that we can derive God ourselves because it makes sense to us. But what I mean instead is that 
God is above all things. God is the creator of all things. And so all logical patterns in this world evidence God. Think about Romans chapter 1, the created order. There's Psalm 19, the created order displays who God is in all of his attributes and his existence. So anything that uh, has a logical arrangement to it reflects the character of God, because God is not illogical. God is not outside the realm of logic either, because God communicates to us propositional truths. The way that we can, and that gets us to our second point, now that the Bible is not contradictory. So God is not contradictory. God is not illogical. And therefore, his word that he gives us is not illogical. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean that the Bible does not contradict itself. Since the Bible, in all of its truths that it unpacks, whether you're in the book of Revelation, whether you're in the book of Genesis, whether you're in the book of Ruth, whether you're in a book like Ecclesiastes or Song of Solomon, any of the biblical books that God gives to us are going to agree with one another because it is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Now, that again connects those two features together. God is not illogical, therefore his Word is not illogical. And now the third point is that since this accords with reality, this is the best benefit for us to study and glean from the Bible in all of its uh, theological teachings. This method brings the most clarity. It brings the most clarity because it makes it easy to remember, he says. It makes it easy to remember and strings together all of these things uh, like a chain where everything builds upon and reinforces the other. So, I really love the way that he puts it there because it gets us back to some of the things that he's already said in his best method for preaching when it comes to the benefit of understanding what the Bible says in sermons. Uh, the benefit comes when the congregation is able to commit that truth to memory. I always like to relate that to the biblical verse of hiding God's word in our heart that we might not sin against him. There's a connection there of all of this is the best method, all of this is the right way of doing it because it accords with godliness. It is the pattern that God gives us in order that we might grow and be sanctified as a result. So it's not an academic exercise. It's not this school of thought versus this school of thought, and it's all a matter of opinion. But instead, Peter Van Maastricht has his eye towards and wants us to have our eyes towards the goal, the goal of personal growth and holiness, the goal of coming away uh, from God's word in a way that changes us as a result. So this is why uh, the need for method in theology is helpful, and those are the three reasons that he gives for it. Uh, the second point that he makes now is the sort of method, I should say the third point, the sort of method that must be employed. Here's what he says. You might ask, by what method then is theology most suitably taught? So we've made the argument that method is necessary, 
We've made the argument that method is not something that has been recently invented as a way of doing it. But if we agree with all of that, what is the method? How do we do it? What do we mean when we say we have to have a certain method in place in terms of theology? He says a method is nothing but an apt arrangement of the different topics according to the dependence they have upon each other. First, with respect to themselves and how they mutually coexist, and then with respect to us in how we understand them. So he goes through a whole bunch of different uh, ways of, of putting this, but he says that this method, skip down a little bit, he says, uh, we approve out of all the methods the one that the apostle not only commends in this text to Timothy when he wishes that theological matters first be taught and then admonished, that thereby practice be perpetually joined to theory, but also employs everywhere throughout his epistles, especially those he wrote to the Romans, Ephesians, Hebrews, and others. He says, by this method, I say again, practice should be joined to theory, not only in the whole corpus of theology, in such a way that the first place is especially reserved for the things that must be believed, and the second for the things that must be done, but also that in each member of theology, practice should walk in step with theory in a continuous agreement. Now, there's a lot of commas there, even though uh, it's a very concise way of putting it. So let me try to unpack that. So what he says, in essence, is this. Where we go to find out what kind of method we have in mind here is the Bible. He says, This is actually not a matter of speculation. This is actually a pattern or a method that we can find in the Bible. And he gives the example of books like Romans, Ephesians, Hebrews, and others. He says the pattern is essentially this, theory and practice, theory and practice. Now you think about the structure of books like Romans and Ephesians, which are two examples that he gives. The book of Romans, 16 chapters in length. Now, it's not necessarily a 50-50 here, but in general, the book of Romans is presented to us by, first of all, the theory. You could find that in chapters 1 through 11. And then the practice, chapters 12 through 16. You could find the same pattern in the book of Ephesians. This one's a little bit more 50-50, where the first three chapters are the theory, and chapters 4, 5, and 6, the second half of the letter, is the practice. Now, again, it's not always the case that the book is neatly divided up in a 50-50 or that it's a hard and fast separation between the two because they're always interacting with each other. But he's instead promoting to us that, biblically speaking, the way God's people are instructed in divine pieces of literature, such as Romans and Ephesians, shows us that the pattern is theory and practice. And now the rest of that paragraph, what he said in all of those commas, is that it's not just that we teach the whole scope of theology in its theory, and then we move on after the fact and talk about practice. It's one thing to look at the bird's eye view about theology and say, this is all of theology, here is all of the theory, and then you have another class you have a bonus round that then talks about practice 
but instead he says that every single article, or as he says, every single every single member of theology has a practical element locked into it. That goes back to what he said before of, of walking step by step. Practice should walk in step with theory in a continuous agreement. So it's not only in the big picture that theology consists of theory and practice, but it's that every single article, every single doctrine has a theory and practice tied to it. That is precisely what he means by theoretical, practical theology. So now hopefully you see uh, in a very helpful way why it is that he names theology, his way of doing systematic theology, theoretical, practical. And you can see why he doesn't have seven volumes of theology where the first three or four talk about theory and the last few talk about practice, but instead this pattern of theory and practice is what he does all the way in every single volume, in every single doctrine. I think that's the genius of Peter Van Maastricht, and he makes such a strong argument, as we've seen already, of why it is the best way of doing it. We can understand now, hopefully, in some way, why Jonathan Edwards says this is the best, <laughs> the best book we can get our hands on next to the Bible. So, uh, one, one last verse that he cites there at the end of the paragraph is John thirteen seventeen. He says, for that reason, in his most wise counsel, Christ, uh, the Savior joins them together, John thirteen seventeen. If you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So knowing them and doing them, the theoretical and the practical coincide. They walk in agreement step by step. Okay, so now he brings up uh, just two other considerations, uh, which we'll deal with uh, briefly, and that is the elenctic and the practical. All right, so... We started off on page 67 here talking about the dogmatic. Now he's going to briefly talk about the elenctic and the practical. He says, must theology be taught according to a certain method? That's the question that he poses. It is asked, must theology be taught according to a certain method? As an example of excess, the scholastics, according to their philosophical theology, loved the philosophical method of Aristotle whether it was his analytic or synthetic method, to the point of distraction. So what he's saying here is there's such a thing of trying to be too methodological. There's such a thing of being so consumed with the order and method, uh, categories and subcategories and sub-subcategories ad infinitum, and that can get us to a point of distraction where we have our minds uh, drifting away from what the big idea is, why we're doing this in the first place. He says, um, on the other hand, you have some who argue that no method is needed at all. He says, the enthusiasts raise the following objections, that theology surpasses the capacity of reason, and thus also a logical method. If you want to uh, relate that to 21st century arguments, you might hear it this way. You can't put God in a box. I absolutely hate it when people say that because it is true that we cannot put God in a box. However, normally when people say that, what they mean is doctrine doesn't matter. 
what they mean is it is useless to develop systems of theology. It is a snub-nosed Christianity to have a statement of faith. It is definitely a snub-nosed Christianity for you to want all of your members of your congregation to agree on matters of doctrine. Doctrine divides, Christ unites, right? That whole mindset. So he's saying here uh, that we don't want to drift into the extreme side of method and get distracted from what the point is, but we also don't want to make the argument um, that this is not needed at all. Because what we are saying here is that, essentially, if we can't put God in a box, therefore he is illogical. What he says is illogical too, right? You can't organize what the Bible says because it's bigger than our minds. And so therefore, it's a bad action to try to have a system of theology. He says, both of those views are terrible uh, because the first one gets us away from Christ. The second one gets us away from Christ. Uh, We want to take seriously what it is that God has said to us. He says, I respond that it does indeed surpass the capacity of a corrupted reason, but not the capacity of a reason illuminated by the word and spirit, which judges spiritually and thus also orders and arranges spiritual things. And he cites 1 Corinthians 2, a wonderful passage to cite. The wisdom that we have is not from the world, but it is wisdom. It's wisdom given to us by the Spirit in order to understand the things of God. That's essentially 1 Corinthians 2 in a nutshell. 1 Corinthians 1 talks about how the Christian faith is foolishness to the world, but it's not because it's illogical. It's not because we're going above and beyond reason to the point of being unreasonable and illogical, but instead it's because the fallen reason of humanity looks at the Bible and scoffs at it. Peter Van Maastricht says that the reason that we're given is one that's illuminated by the Word and by the Holy Spirit. Certainly not illogical. The second argument is that theology transcends all sciences and likewise transcends the laws of method. And he responds, um, He says, I respond that it does transcend the natural sciences, but does it therefore also transcend all order? Does theology really exclude order? So the point that he keeps making again and again is we should have it out of our minds that the Bible causes us to check our intellect at the door. That when we engage in Christian Christian thinking, that when we engage in the Christian faith, that we must leave aside our intellect, that we must put our reason in a bag and get it back out once we're done. He's saying that this is a foolish uh, thought because it comes across as communicating that God is illogical, that God is unreasonable. And those things are meant to point to his existence, not preclude his existence. And so finally, he says this in that paragraph. He says, Um, that order does not change the matter ordered or detract in any way from its perfection. If the order detracts from theology, it is not the the method 
that is at fault, but the ignorance of the artisan who contorts theology to his or his own perverse rules rather than prudently adapting his method to theology. I'll read that again. He says, This objection is false, for order does not change the matter ordered or detract in any way from its perfection. If the order detracts from theology, it is not the method that is at fault, but the ignorance of the artisan who contorts theology to his own perverse rules rather than prudently adapting his method to theology. What he's saying is it is a foolish thought to think that if we arrange theology into a method that somehow we water down theology as a result. Because the method is not the saving grace. The method is meant to elevate the content. The method is a means to understanding the content. We don't want to absolutize the method, but we also don't want to assume that if we employ a method, we're thereby diminishing the content. Because the content is God's breathed word. The content is that which is able to make us wise for salvation. And so to think that a method could somehow water that down or ruin it uh, is not thinking in the right way at all. All right. And so finally, the practical part, which this pattern, remember from last time we were together, this pattern that he's talking about with the dogmatic, the elinctic, the practical What he's doing here is he's giving us a landscape in order to understand where we're going as we move forward in the subsequent chapters. So he's trying to make a a rationale for why we're dealing with the dogmatic part of a doctrine, the elinctic part of a doctrine, the practical part of the doctrine. So now finally on page 71, the practical part. What is the point of this? What's the point for the method? He says, the first use is for censuring. Number one those to be censored. We turn to practice now. In the first place, the sort who deviate from the right path are those who teach theological matters, whether from a professor's chair or a preacher's pulpit, without any method, or two, those who, though they have some kind of method, work hard to hide it and therefore act as if they have none at all. Or three, those who, although they show some method, it is not suitable to the topic, or four, even if it is suitable to the topic, Nevertheless, it is not suitable for the student. Or finally, number five, even if it is suitable for the student, nevertheless, it is suitable only to his intellect for speculation, but not to his will for action. There's a lot to be said there, but the point is that the reason that this matters is, and so it can correct those who say method is not needed, or those who have a method that doesn't follow the pattern of the Bible. And the examples that he gives are that a method does not follow the Bible if it's not beneficial to the student, if it elevates the teacher or the preacher in a way that elevates them and makes it look like they're inventing all of this out of thin air instead of following the pattern of the Bible. Or then finally, if it doesn't promote growth and holiness, he says, if instead it only suits one's intellect or speculation, but not his will for action. So if it only affects the head, but not the heart, that's also a way of correction for the wrong kind of method and hopefully moving towards the right kind. 
He says, um, those who deviate in these ways incur the mark of disorder and confusion, which is something that God hates, and deprive their theological discourses of charm and elegance and render themselves useless to their hearers. So what he says, that lack of method and practice is detrimental. It hinders one's intellect and memory when you lack a method. If theological teaching is sporadic, if sermons are just sporadic, how is it that that is going to actually benefit a member of the congregation or a student of theology? There's nothing to latch on to. It's too, it's too uh, fluid. It's trying to grasp at something that you can't actually hold on to. There's no subject matter to it. It's just freestyling. And he says that the point is getting it into the intellect, into the memory, into the heart. So you have to have a method. If you don't have a method, you can't actually get to the end goal of theology. He said the second use is for exhortation. So those were correctives and now encouragements, the duty. In the second place, the apostle rightly exhorts all Timothys, he says, all doctors, all ministers here, to pursue a method by which they equally teach and apply the heads of religion. And moreover, that they first teach and then apply. In this matter, they prove that they are sons of God inasmuch as they are his imitators, since he is the God of order and not confusion. Whereas those of the contrary view prove that they are agents of Satan, who is the author and patron of confusion. Very, very interesting argument there is this exhortation is to prove that you are an ambassador of Christ. He says the way that you do is actually how your subject matter is comprised. Now, this doesn't have to do with uh, how effective of a communicator you are, therefore proves that you're a Christian or not, because there's a whole lot of silver-tongued demons, right? There's a whole lot of false professors, false Christians. Uh, who are very good at speaking, very good at making uh, arguments. But the point that he's making is, in our attempts as preachers and teachers, that is, to instruct God's people, we should want our subject matter to reflect the one that we represent. So he says, orderly and logical and agreeable things speak to who God is, as a God of order and not confusion, whereas sporadic, chaotic, confusing things correlate to Satan, who is the author of confusion. Very interesting argument. He says, um, for motives, that is on top of page 72, he says, these Timothys, these teachers, show themselves to be workers approved and unashamed since they can rightly divide the word of truth. We looked at that in 2 Timothy 2.15 earlier. By a brilliant and elegant method, they render the doctrine of God pleasing to their hearers. It says, they make the doctrine of God not only pleasing and welcome, but also useful and fruitful. There's nothing more encouraging in my time as a pastor when people come up to me after a sermon or after a Sunday school lesson and thank me for the ability of unpacking God's Word to them in a way that really shines light on something in their lives that they 
They celebrate the fact that they understand a certain doctrine, they understand a certain book of the Bible, or they find something that was said very helpful to their Christian life. That's always a rewarding thing for a pastor or teacher to hear because it encourages me or encourages the teacher to know that they have just rightly divided the word of truth in a way that is useful and fruitful to the hearers. And so if you are a hearer, um, it is a very great idea. If somebody in your life, your pastor, your uh, good Christian friend, uh, your small group leader, whatever context you're in, uh, is able to unpack God's word in a way that is useful and fruitful to you, be sure to encourage them and let them know that, uh, because it is a great uh, encouragement. I can say that from experience. Finally, mode. He says, so that teachers may pursue the method more properly, I would recommend that three things must be observed, namely, that the method be consistent with the following. The topic to be handled, the capacity of the hearers in usefulness and godliness, such that all things are carried over into practice and end up there. 2 Timothy 3.16 So, he gave three things there um, in the argument. I'm sorry, actually, four things. He says, a censuring Capacities or corrective action is the practical. The exhortation or the encouragement. And then he subdivides that into motives and mode. So you want to have the right motives and you want to have the right mode. So that wraps things up for this episode. Uh, we've worked our way through his first theorem of understanding this method of theology. The first theorem. And then we'll move to the second theorem next time we're together on Teaching Thursdays, which he calls the definitum of theology. So we'll get into his big idea for that, which is on page number 73. Well, hopefully this has been encouraging and you are able to, at the very least, understand why it is that he promotes a theoretical, practical theology from A to Z and everything that he deals with in biblical doctrine. And my encouragement to you is that you take up and read this wonderful book. Again, if you don't have a copy, you can find a link in the description. And I will see you next time on Teaching Thursdays as we pick up where we left off in this wonderful book, Theoretical Practical Theology by Peter Van Maastricht. Please feel free to head over to betterbiblereading.com for more content, a free course to help you read and understand the Bible. But until we're together next time, take care and thank you so much for watching and listening.